We'll be looking at Job 29 through 31 this morning, covering three chapters of Scripture. I, I hope that you took some time this week to read through it, as, of course, whenever we take a larger chunk of Scripture, there's not enough time to go verse by verse in the sense of reading it. We'll talk about each verse in a manner of speaking, but not read through it all. The title of the message is God Sees and Knows. You know, being a father has taught me many important lessons about God. It's one of those things. When I got married uh, just over five years ago now, I learned a lot of lessons about God. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, the relationship between Jesus Christ and His church through my relationship to my wife. Well, when I became a father, I learned a great deal about God as well. See, because I learned what it truly is teaching when God says He is our Father. I learned the great impl implications of, of being a parent, caring for a child, loving a child, uh, dis disciplining a child, uh, discipling a child, teaching a child, all of those things. I learned a great deal. But you know, I learned other things too from having children about my spiritual life. And one of the things that I learned is that though we all grow up, we all mature, there are certain things that as we get older are seem ridiculous or taboo or whatever the case may be that as children might be cute or might be just the way it is. You know, in our spiritual lives, a lot of times there are things that we do that are very childish, are very immature. Let me give you an example. My daughters like to play peekaboo with me. Now, we don't call it peekaboo. I never say the word peekaboo. I don't know why. I just never got into saying peekaboo. Um, but they'll cover their eyes, especially lately at the, at the um, dinner table. They'll be eating, and all of a sudden, I guess they'll get bored, and they'll just cover their eyes. And they're wanting me to play with them. And I'll say, where's Aunt Paris? Where's Aletheia? And they'll cover their eyes, and they'll start to peek through their fingers. I can't see them, but they can see me. You know, they're peeking through their fingers. I can course, see their eyes just fine, but their, their eyes are still covered, so where's Karis? Where's Aletheia? And then they'll go like this, and I'll say, there she is, and then they'll cover their eyes again. Or they'll go behind the curtains, and they'll do the same thing, or they'll put a blanket over their head, and they'll do the same thing. And the implication in their minds, the idea in their minds is as long as I can't see them, or as long as my eyes are covered, they can't see me. As long as they they can't see my eyes. They can't see me. Now, it's funny. When my wife and I were in Florida, we had a cat that was this way. It was a kitten. And kittens, being what they are, they like to pounce and play and those sorts of things. We'd walk by our kitten, and he would pounce on our feet and uh, try to uh, catch his prey as we walked by. Well, one of the things that our kitten liked to do and would characteristically do is hide before he pounced. And we had a rug. And this kitten, his name was Wingnut, would bury himself in the rug. And so we'd walk by and we'd see this large lump in our rug. And of course, the cat didn't know that his tail was attached to him. He and his tail were always at enmity one with another. And so his tail would not be under the rug. And you'd see it slowly swaying back and forth. And on the other end of the rug would be a little crease and you'd see big old eyes staring out at you. And then this big lump in the middle. And as you'd get closer, his tail would start going a little bit faster. And as you walked by, you'd see a paw pop out and try to grab your foot or whatever the case may be. This kitten was convinced that he was covered because he had something over him. 
he didn't realize that even though he had a rug over him, he was a gigantic lump in this rug. And though the rest of the rug was flat, he wasn't flat. And so we could see him just fine. We knew that he was there. We knew what he was doing. He wasn't surprising anybody. But he was convinced that he was covered. That he was hidden. Now we get older. And we recognize that when I cover my eyes, you can still see me. I'm not hiding from anyone in this room when I cover my eyes. I know that. You know that. Because we have grown in our maturity. We know that the cat was not concealing himself, even though he was under a rug. But oftentimes, spiritually, don't we act that way? Somehow, we convince ourselves that our circumstances and our actions are not seen by God. Somehow, we believe that the events of our life have caught God off guard or have made Him unprepared or that the sins in our life can be hidden as long as we do them in secret or in the cover of darkness or as long as we don't get caught by any person. When you think about it, we're doing the exact same thing to God that my daughters do to me. We're covering our eyes and thinking that God doesn't see us. We're doing something in the cover of physical darkness and thinking that the all-knowing God doesn't see us. Or we get into life and there are circumstances that arise and there are difficult circumstances and we convince ourselves that because others don't understand, God doesn't understand. Because others can't know what we're going through, God doesn't know what we're going through. It's kind of childish when you think about it, isn't it? We're going to talk about that today, Job 29, 30, and 31. God sees and knows, and we're going to learn three lessons concerning this God that sees and this God that knows. Three circumstances in our life that God does, in fact, see. That God does, in fact, know and how our response should be in light of this knowledge. And the first lesson we're going to learn in Job 29 is that God sees and knows your joys. God sees and knows your joys. Chapter 29 in Job is a chapter of loving remembrance for the man. Job thinks back to his days of joy and comfort and happiness. I'm going to walk through the chapter with you. In verses 3 and 4, Job remembers the days when God's light saw him through the darkness. When God granted him wisdom and understanding in his circumstances. In verses 5 through 7, Job remembers his family. He misses his family. His family's dead, if you recall. His children, at least. He wishes he could have his children back. He remembers his prosperity and comfort with his children. In verses 8 through 10, Job remembers the respect that everyone had for him. He remembers his good testimony. He was a man of influence. He was a man who was looked upon for his wisdom and for his godliness. In verses 11 through 17, Job remembers that his testimony and his wealth and his prosperity allowed him to do some great things. Good things which he can no longer do in his illness and in his loss. He laments that he can no longer help the poor, that he can no longer help the widows as he had done before, 
because he was now poor and needy himself. He had nothing to give to them. He lost it all. He remembers his testimony of godliness and of wisdom, and he realizes that he can no longer reprove the wicked. He can no longer show the wicked their wickedness because the wicked now scorn him. The wicked now think themselves better than he. The wicked now laugh at his derision. The wickedness count them count the wicked count Job as one of them. He can no longer be a testimony against the wicked. He can no longer help the poor needy. In verses 18 through 25, Job remembers his expectation of those days, his hope in those days. He expected to die full of years and quite comfortable. He expected to be strong and able for years to come. He expected to be a man of great counsel to the younger generations for years to come. He expected to be an unshakable testimony of God and pervasive in his influence for God in the world. And as I read through Job 29, I'd never thought about Job that way before. You know, I knew that he lost a lot. I knew that there were many things that he had that he no longer had. But I guess I'd never thought before about how much Job's loss meant a loss of testimony and of charity in his area. How much had Job given to the poor? How many had he helped? How good was his testimony? How many young men had he discipled to living for God? How many men had he taught to serve God with all their hearts? What a great loss. That not only did Job lose his circumstances, but what a great loss for his community. That this man of great charity and this man of great wisdom was now poor, needy, and defamed. Everything changed on the day that Job lost all. All of the plans that he had came to a screeching halt. He lost his influence, his ability to help others, his strength to help others. He even lost his reputation as a pious and godly man. And as we think about this, and as Job reflects upon his circumstances, we might ask, did God see this? Did God know that this had happened? Did God realize that one of his choice servants had lost all of his former abilities to do good and to affect good? Did God understand that what had just happened to Job was not in God's best interest? In a manner of speaking, Job was a giver. Job was a preacher of righteousness. Job was a testimony for God. Job was an obedient servant of God. What we understand as we'll continue through this book and what we will understand in just a, two chapters is that God does see. God did see Job. God did know Job's circumstances. God did understand all the good that Job was doing in his prosperity. All of these things, circumstances, didn't change the fact that what God had planned for Job was different than what Job had planned for Job. What God perceived to be in Job's best interests and in the best interests of everyone Job influenced 
was not what Job perceived to be in Job's best influence and in Job's in the best interest of those that Job influenced. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God knows how He can best use us. And it's God's prerogative to choose how He can best use us. Sometimes this will be in prosperity. Sometimes this will be in sorrow. Job knows our joys. Excuse me. God knows our joys. God knows. He understands. He understands that you could do good with what He has given you. He understands that you could do more good with if He were to give you more. God knows. God sees our joys. Chapter 30, we see that God also sees and knows your sorrows. God sees and knows your sorrows. Job 30 is the exact opposite of Job 29. Whereas Job in Job 29 was reflecting upon all the good that he was able to do. All of the wonderful things that he had and the, the means by which God, or Job served God with Job's prosperity. In chapter 30, Job thinks back upon where he is now, having lost everything in his life. In verses 1-10, through 10, Job describes men without character, men without piety who confidently derive Job, men who once fled to the mountains in shame when Job would preach righteousness, men of wickedness and sin. They now laughed at Job. They now, as I said, counted Job as one of them. They proclaimed their circumstances to be even better than his. These wicked men who had fled from the presence of society because of their sins looked at Job and said, boy, I'm glad I'm not him. I thought I was in bad shape. Look at Job. They mocked him. They mocked his presumed righteousness. They mocked him as one of them. In verses 11 through 19, Job again describes his troubles. And he specifically focuses upon his physical illness. He says he has no comfort. He has no rest. He says that he's in constant pain. That he has no strength. He can't sleep without pain. He can't eat without pain. Even when he does fall asleep, he has nightmares in his sleep. He's a man of tremendous anxiety. He's a man of tremendous discomfort. In verses 20-31, through Job describes the most difficult part of his suffering. Rhetorical question this morning. Thinking about Job's circumstances, and we've talked about this before, what would you say would be the most difficult part of Job's suffering? Think about all that he lost, his wealth, his testimony, his children, his goods, his servants, his livelihood. But really, what troubled Job the most, and I believe what often troubles us the most when we're in the hardest of difficulties and circumstances, is that Job doesn't understand. Job doesn't understand. Look at verse 20. I cry unto thee, and thou dost not hear me. I stand up, and thou regardest me not. Thou art become cruel to me. 
With thy strong hand thou opposest thyself against me. Thou liftest me up to the wind. Thou causest me to ride upon it and dissolvest my substance. Now we know that Job is talking to God here, as we recall, because he's talking with the first person. Uh, he's talking, excuse me, in the second person singular pronoun. Thou, thee and thou, the second person singular. We know that he's talking to God, one person. When he talks to his companions, he talks to them and you and your second person plural. See, Job's going through all of this anguish, all of this difficulty, and he wants there to be an end, but he doesn't see an end. He wants explanation, but he doesn't have explanation. He would be willing to die, because if he died, at least it would be over, but he can't die. He's prepared for death, but death doesn't come. He wants answers, but answers don't come. He feels as though God has forsaken him. That's the hardest part of his trial. That's the most difficult part of the tribulation is his perception that God was not there. That he would never understand. Does God even see? Does God know that this has happened? Does God realize that one of his choice servants is now in constant pain and agony, simply longing for his own death? Does God understand that Job is not being well requited for all of his devotion and godliness and obedience? Does God see these things? Does God know these things? A few weeks ago, we had Missionary Bell and his family here. And in one of Missionary Bell's sermons, I believe it was the Sunday evening sermon, excuse me, Monday evening sermon, he mentioned that his favorite missionary example was a man by the name of William Borden. For those of you that are unfamiliar, let me give you a little bit of background on William Borden. William Borden was a, a man who lived at the turn of the 20th century. He was an heir to a great family fortune. And at the age of 16, as a part of this fortune, and as a part of his privilege, his parents paid for him to have a trip around the world. Pretty nice. I wouldn't mind one of those myself. So William Borden goes on this trip around the world. And as he's traveling through China, India, his heart is stirred for the souls of men. And when he came back from his trip, he chose to become a missionary and to go onto the field. His family and friends were in disbelief. They thought that William Borden was going to be wasting his life. Here's a 16-year-old man with his whole life ahead of him. Heir to a family fortune. And he said, I'm going to go on the mission field. And as his family and friends sought to persuade him away from this calling, sought to convince him that this wasn't what God wanted him to do, much less what he wanted for his own life, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible. And those two words were these. No reserves. No reserves. No reserves. He'll give it all up. He'll trust in the Lord. He'll do what God wants him to do. Well, Borden continued to grow. He got busy. He went to Yale for his education. While he was at Yale, he was busy serving the Lord. 
And if you read the testimony of those who were at school with him, they would say that William Borden himself was almost exclusively the catalyst for a revival of the entire student body at Yale. Yale at that time was still um, somewhat of a Christian institution. They still had some loyalties to the Word of God, that which is no longer existent. And there was a great campus-wide revival and a great zeal for God that really started with William Borden's zeal. On the day that William graduated from Yale, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Those two words were these. No retreats. No retreats. When he was 16, he said there will be no reserves. As he graduated from Yale, he said there will be no retreat. Well, William Borden at that time would go on to graduate work. He'd go on to seminary. He went to a good seminary at the time, Princeton Seminary, another school that no longer has any loyalty to the Word of God. And while he was at Yale and while he was at Princeton, he realized and determined that God desired him to go to the Muslim Kansu people in China. And so he was headed for China. When he was at Princeton, he was headed for China. When he graduated from Princeton Seminary, he sailed to Egypt. He was going to begin his missions work by studying Arabic in order that he might minister to these Muslim people in China. While William Borden was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis. In a matter of a month after arriving in Egypt, William Borden had died. 25 years old, headed to the mission field, zeal for God, passion for God, the catalyst for a revival among a student body, and at age 25, he dies of spinal meningitis on his way to the mission field. When Borden's personal effects made it back to his family, they looked in his Bible, and there were six words written on the back. Say six. Pastor, you've only given us four. That's right. At age 16, he wrote, no reserves. When he graduated from Yale, he wrote, no retreats. As he was in Egypt, dying of spinal meningitis, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, and those words were these, no regrets. No regrets. Here was a man that understood that God sees and God knows. God sees the joys. God knows the joys. But God sees the sorrows. God knows the sorrows. Is God in control? Yes, He's in control. Does God have a plan? Yes, He has a plan. Was it in God's plan that William Borden would die on the way to the mission field? Yes, it was. God sees. God knows. Our joys. Our sorrows. Third and finally, chapter 31. God sees and knows your heart. God sees and knows your heart. Job enters into his final statements. And as he does so, we find that Job does indeed understand and recognize that God is all-seeing and all-knowing omnipresent, omniscient. 
He thus spends this chapter stating how he has and continues to live his life in a manner that is befitting a man of righteousness. Look with me in verses 1 through 4 of Job 31. Job says, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I look upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? God knows everywhere Job went, everything Job did, every thought Job had. God knows Job's intent in every action. God knows how much money Job gave and how much he kept. God knows Job's heart to do right and his heart to do evil. There is nothing hid from God and far be it from Job to pretend like God doesn't know his life and God doesn't know his heart. May I say as well, God sees and knows you. God sees and knows your steps. God sees and knows your ways. God sees and knows your intents. God sees and knows your thoughts. God knows the reason you're here this morning. He knows the intent of your heart. God knows why you're giving what you're giving to others as well as to this church and the intent with which you're giving it. God knows your failings and He knows your victory. Job spends the rest of the chapter describing various actions that would reflect unrighteousness and contends that if any of them should apply to his life, that he would deserve the consequences of those sins. In verses 5 and 6, he says, If I've done any vain or deceitful living, if I've lived in emptiness or if I've lived in deceit, then let me be judged. Verses 7 and 8, he says, If I've lusted or if I've stolen to get that which is not mine, let others eat of my unjust gain. If I've gotten my money from dishonest means, then let others have my food and my money. He says in verses 9-12, through 12, If I have been unfaithful to my marriage vows, then let someone else have my wife, someone who will love her the way she deserves to be loved. Verses 13-15, to 15, he says, If I have treated my servants, my employees, without human dignity and respect, well then I would be guilty before God. He says in verses 16 through 23, if I have ever failed to feed the poor or if I have ever failed to give the needy of my substance, if I've ever eaten before others have eaten, if I've ever eaten well while others have not eaten well, then let my arms fall off, he says. Verses 24 through 28, this is where we began reading in our scripture reading this morning. If he ever trusted in gold and riches instead of in God, or if he ever gave homage to false gods instead of to the true God, he should be punished. For by having idols of gold or by worshiping creation, he denies God, God's worth. Verses 29 through 30, he says, if he ever rejected, excuse me, if he ever rejoiced in his enemy's sufferings, or if he ever cursed his enemy's soul, then he certainly should be judged as a wicked man. Job concludes in verses 31 through 40 that if any sin could be found in him or if he covered his sin as Adam covered his sin in the garden, then all of these consequences ought to come upon him. Now as we look at Job's statement, as we look at these lists, I'd like us to think two thoughts this morning. The first thought is this. Notice what Job calls sin. The things which, if he had committed them, 
he would completely understand God's judgment of him. Deceit. Passing something off as true that is not true. Lying. Lust. Wanting something that is not yours to have. Unfaithfulness to our spouse. Adultery in any form. Lack of respect for those under our authority. Be it employees, children. Failure to care for the poor and the widows. That which James tells us is religion pure and undefiled. Putting our confidence in idols. Putting our confidence in something other than God. Placing idols. What is an idol? An idol is something that you place higher in priority than God. And he specifically mentions financial prosperity. Or rejoicing when an enemy of yours has come upon hard times. Or cursing the soul of one's enemy. It's all sin before God. And Job says every single one of these things is worthy of judgment. And as I read this list, I think, how often do I offend God's righteousness? You know the ones that really hit me on this list were the last two? Putting confidence in idols and rejoicing in an enemy's shame or rejoicing in an enemy's hard times. How often do we put confidence in something other than God? Confidence in our own ability to get something done. Confidence in the money that we have in the bank. Confidence that we're doing okay How often do we replace God with an idol? But this last one, you know, it's been a tough five years politically in this country. Since President Obama has stepped into office, it's been a difficult time for Christians. He is not a friend of God. He is not a friend of God's Word. And he has emboldened a wicked culture to assert itself in this nation. I think we have many enemies. Christians have many enemies in Washington. As well as in governments all around this country. State, local. But do you see what Job says here? As Job speaks in verses 29 to 30. He says, if I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him, neither have I suffered my mouth to sin by wishing a curse upon his soul. The scriptures tell us to respect the authorities that are over us, to honor them for the position they've been given. When we rejoice, when our enemies fall, when those that hate us fall into some destruction, when we curse the soul of our enemy, Job says, if I had done such a thing, I would be guilty before God. And I believe the Scriptures bear out in Romans 14, in 1 Peter, that this is the case, that we ought to honor those that God has placed in positions of authority, whether we agree with them or not, And that we ought not curse or rejoice in the demise of any man, including our enemies. I think the best example we have in Scripture is Christ. 
and David. Two men who found no rejoicing in their enemy's demise. Particularly as David lamented over Saul's death. We see a man who had no rejoicing in the death of his enemy. Those were the two that hit me. Which ones is the Holy Spirit speaking to you about? But there's a second thing I'd like us to think about as we leave here. And that's what we've really themed the morning around. How is it that Job was able to maintain purity before God? Now, we know that Job was not sinless. He did these things, but he repented of them. He got them right with God immediately, and he tried not to do them. That list of sins that you and I, to our shame, so often commit, maybe sometimes without even thinking, how is it that Job refrained from such sins? I believe he gives us his key here in Job 31. Look at me again at verse 4. Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? The man who truly understands that God sees and God knows, the man who actively practices the presence of God at every moment of every day is the man that will refrain his steps from sin. When you think that you are alone, God sees and God knows. When you are so quick to believe that God sees, But, selectively, if I may put it that way, we, we know that God sees us in our sorrows. And how often do we comfort ourselves by assuring ourselves that God sees us in our sorrows? But how often do we not want to admit that that same God sees us in our sin? Do we have a double standard on God's omnipresence? Do we believe, certainly, amen, Pastor, God sees us in our joys. Amen, Pastor, God sees us in our sorrows, but, oh, He sees us in our sin as well. Practicing the presence of God. If there's sin in your life, have you today realized that God sees it? That God knows it? Can you begin to practice the presence of God? We talked this morning about the means by which we as disciples serve God. And we said this, that it is our duty to die to self, empowered by yielding to the Spirit of God, and compelled by what? Fear and love. Love for what He has done for us. Fear, because there is still a day of judgment. We will all stand 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, we will give an account for everything that God saw and everything that God knows and He sees and knows everything that we do. Everything that we think. Everything that's in our hearts. Even if it doesn't make it to our mouths. Even if it doesn't make it to our eyes. Even if it doesn't make it to our hands. Perhaps there are sins in one's life that are difficult to conquer. Frustrated at doing the things that we shouldn't. Well, that is the frustration of this life. But the fear of God is what helps us through. Is what gets us to the point where we recognize that serving God is more important than serving ourselves. And the fear of God is knowing that God sees and God knows. When 
Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 13, he said this, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul was speaking there in the context of spiritual gifts, as those of you that were around two weeks ago know from Tim's preaching. You know, we considered at the beginning of the sermon the comical mind of the child or of the kitten that hides the child that would hide his eyes from you and be convinced that you can't see them. Or the absurdity of that lumpy body under a rug thinking it's hidden. And then we turn around, we cover our eyes, we sin before God, and we say, God didn't see me. And then we go to church and we say, here I am, right? I'm here now. You can see me now, God. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm singing. I'm dressed all nice. Here I am. And then you leave the building. You go home and you say, where did I go? You can't see me. You don't see me. Don't see what I do now. Just wait until Tuesday night and then we'll say, here I am. Don't we do that? We've been reminded today that God sees and God knows. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? Well, it means, first of all, that whatever your circumstances are, they're not a mistake. They're not. Your income is not God's mistake. Your health is not God's mistake. Your circumstances, now, these circumstances may have been made by you. They may have been made by your mistakes, but they are certainly not made by God's mistakes. But it also means that you and I have some work to do in our lives. It means those things in your car, or in your house, or in your bedroom, or in your bank account, or in your heart, or in your mind, those things that no one knows about but you are right out in the open in the eyes of God. This week, it's my hope that every one of us will pursue actively recognizing the presence of God. That every action we take, every thought we have, will be done, will be acted upon with the understanding that God sees and God knows that as it says in verse 4 of chapter 31, doth not he see my ways? He does. And count all my steps.